0: family. It is so good to be together, and we're looking forward to the day when we don't have to put quotation marks on that together, and we can actually physically, literally be together. But we want you to know we're wanting to be careful and prudent, and we want to be good stewards of this opportunity in this season. And I, our staff team, I mean, they are doing an amazing job going deep into the details and researching what will that look like. We're going to be doing a survey this coming week that you'll get a copy of. You can let us know some of your thoughts about how we are going to phase back in to being together. But in the meantime, I am so glad to be able to be with you, how how grateful we can be for for this gift of technology. Now, as we're hunkered down in our quarantine, starting to come out some, some of us have been really binging on movies, others of us have been binging on books. I have a book here, one of my favorites, Point of Three, The Fellowship of the Ring, part of Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. And uh, some might say, oh, great, he, they did a book after the movie, actually. The book came out before the movie. And if you've never read the book, this is a good time to do that. And the book is real similar to the movie. The movies are awesome. But I want to spend some time, let's just have some story time together as we're continuing this series in Psalm 23. And it's midway through this first book. And if you've never seen the Fellowship of the Ring and you're saying, oh, I don't spoil it, I'm sorry. It's been out a long time. So uh, you can just close your ears for just a minute. But I want to. there's something powerful about the way Tolkien puts the words. And he describes a scene that I want to spend some time lingering in and then I want us to take that into Psalm 23. But here's the context. Remember Frodo and his buddies, are being pursued by the nine black riders, and they're terrifying. And they have finally gained on them, and this is in the last f- few miles before they get to the ford in which they can cross over into this land called Rivendell, which is ruled by this majestic elf called Elrond. Frodo's been wounded, and so he's by these ring wraiths, and so he's suffering. And they're after him, they're not after the others, so they get to the about a mile of open field, and that's when these nine black horses come in now, a little bit different than the movie, Frodo is alone on an elvish horse it's a white horse, and it's a horse that's much faster than the, the uh, ring race horses, but he's still uh, he's concerned, he's afraid, and they're also cutting him off. And I want you to hear what he says. But the pursuers were close behind. At the top of the bank, the horse halted and turned around, neighing fiercely. There were nine riders at the water's edge below, and Frodo's spirit quailed before the threat of their uplifted faces. So what's just happened is Frodo cr- crossed the ford, he waded through the river, and now he's on the other side, and he's looking back at the ring race. He knew of nothing that would prevent them from crossing as easily as he had done, and he felt that it was useless to try to escape over the long, uncertain path from the ford to the edge of Rivendell if once the riders crossed. And he quaked. And what ends up happening, the black horses began to come into the river, and you're saying, yeah, I've seen the movie. it's a little bit different, but the same principle. They come into the river, and, and the magic of Rivendell turns that river into a frothing, really torrential current and sweeps all nine riders away. And the black horses were filled with madness and leaping forward in terror, they bore their riders into the rushing flood and their piercing cries were drowned in the roaring of the river as it carried them away. And then Frodo felt himself falling and the roaring and confusion seemed to rise and engulf him together with his enemies. And he heard and saw no more. He passes out. That's the end of book one. Then there's book two. And this is how it opens. Frodo woke and found himself lying in bed. At first he thought that he had slept late after a long unpleasant dream that still hovered on the edge of memory. Or perhaps he had been ill. But the ceiling looked strange. It was flat and it had dark beams richly carved. He lay a little while longer looking at patches of sunlight on the wall then listening to the sound of a waterfall. Where am I? Uh, And what is the time? He said aloud to the ceiling. In the house of Elrond, and it is 10 o'clock in the morning, said a voice. It's the morning of October the 24th, if you want to know. Gandalf, cried Frodo, sitting up, and there was the old wizard sitting in a chair by the open window. So there Frodo is recovering what he doesn't know and starts to discover. Gandalf explains, basically Elrond did his surgery on him to take care of his shoulder. And he's now got a long recovery ahead. But he's safe from the nine black riders. He's safe from all that was pursuing him. But you'll go a little bit further. It says Frodo was now safe in the last homely house east of the sea. It's the house of Elrond. That house was, as Bilbo had long ago reported, a perfect house. Whether you like food or sleep or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mixture of them all, merely to be there was a cure for weariness and fear and sadness. So then they gathered for a meal at Elrond's table, and Frodo couldn't believe that he was part of this company, that he had been invited to be not only in Rivendell, but at Elrond's table. And this is what Tolkien writes. Such loveliness Frodo had never seen before nor imagined in his mind, and he was both surprised and abashed to find that he had had a seat at Elrond's table, among all these folks so high and fair. And though he had a suitable chair and was raised upon several cushions, he felt very small and rather out of place. But that feeling quickly passed and the feast was merry and the food all that his hunger could desire. Love that. Arlene and I have a a saying that we will do with, with friends. And uh, we would we, we love to, to turn our home into a Rivendell by way of hospitality for people that have been going through some real difficulty. Chased by nine ring race, maybe not, but going through something hard. And uh, we say it was a Rivendell evening, wasn't it? And we've had people give us Rivendell evenings. It's a time for refuge. It's a time for nourishment. It's a time for gladness. It's a time for the darkness to fade. And that sets up this series that we're in, that we're calling it Replenish Sanity for our souls. Our souls are getting pursued. So let's read this very familiar psalm and we're going to camp out on one verse. The Lord is my shepherd. And I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For you're with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows." Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, let's camp out on the Rivendell verse. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows." You know he starts. David starts this psalm talking about himself as a sheep and uh, God being the the shepherd. And he actually refers to the shepherd in third person. Now last week in in verse four, uh, he started using the second person, referring to God as you. So it becomes to a bit, a bit more intimate. Now the intimacy accelerates big time. You prepare a table. You. You you invite me in. You you're, you're hosting me. There's this sense of uh, of being known. I'm a big uh, Matt Damon fan, Big Born uh, uh, series fan, and uh, Matt Damon moved from California to New York. I think it was in 2011. Big star. He and John Krasinski, the uh, the Office guys, done a number of other things since then. They were out shopping, and he uh, Matt Damon went to a wine shop, they went to a wine shop together, he bought a case of wine, it was $1,200. he told Jay Leno in a talk show, he said, yeah, I know it's a little bit expensive. Um, had his credit card, but he didn't have any uh, identification. And the the guy behind the counter would not believe that it was really Matt Damon, because at that time, there were tons of people that were changing their name to Matt Damon. There were people that were on the street. So there was a lot, there was Damon, uh, Matt Damon mania. And this guy thought, this is just another wannabe. And he and John Krasinski tried to convince the guy behind the counter, no, 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 I'm really Matt Damon. He said, sorry. And uh, he didn't have enough cash, obviously, so they walked away. This is the opposite of that. This is not a scenario where we come in to to our father's house. He says, who are you? He says, come on in. I've been waiting for you. This pandemic is evoking a lot of scary stuff in a lot of people. In fact, this past week, I saw a statistic that uh, they're they're using a a phrase called uh, deaths of despair. It's a very, very alarming phrase, and what it's referring to is people that will end up dying in the the coronavirus era, but not from the COVID-19. They'll be dying from uh, deaths of despair, suicide, drug, and alcohol addiction prompted by the darkness of this. 75,000 people are estimated to, to perish in that way because they don't know where to turn. They're being pursued by nine black riders and a number of other things. And in the midst of this, guys, God comes to us and he says, I want you to know something. You've got an invitation for me. And it's invitation, an invitation where you are invited to be at my table. And I've prepared this for you. Now, we think, I don't know, are you, are you kidding me in the midst of all this terrible stuff? Can God, really? Can he prepare a table in the midst of this? Don't we need to get things fixed? Psalm 78, 19 says, uh, the children of Israel, they spoke against God saying, could God spread a table in the desert? No way. Of course, the next verse says he brought water from the rock. In Job 36, verse 15, it says, but those who suffer, He delivers meaning God, but those who suffer, God delivers in their suffering and he speaks to them in their affliction. I'll pay attention to this for a second. He speaks to us in our affliction. C.S. Lewis made that famous statement in the problem of pain. You remember God whispers to us in our pleasures and he speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So he speaks to us in our affliction It's a megaphone. And now look at the next verse, verse 16. Here's what he wants to say. He's wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place, free from restriction to the comfort of your table, laden with choice food. In the desert, in the midst of difficulty, the intimacy that's there, he says, I've prepared a place for you. So he's been waiting. There's an invitation. I with with 100% confidence can issue an invitation in the name of Jesus to every one of you and to me. He's got a he's got a meal ready. It's a meal that He's been getting ready for a while. He says, I've been waiting for you. And it's tailor-made to what you need and what I need. Now, it says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. What are you most hungry for now? What do you most need right now? He knows and he's getting it ready. Genesis chapter 22, verse 14, Abraham was going up the mountain out of obedience and a weird, I mean, he just couldn't believe it, to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And then the ram was caught in the thicket. And so before he and Isaac ever set set foot on their climb, a ram was being sent to the top as well. And this is that famous passage, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. This is a Hebrew uh, word for God, Jehovah Jireh. God provides, he's invited you and me to this table. And he says, I've been preparing this. Uh, some of us have aunts or mothers or um, um, or uncles that are great chefs and they, they will prepare a meal sometimes for days. God's continually doing that for all of us. And it's specific to what I need, specific to what you need. You say, how's that... How's that happen? Isaiah 40 says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord's the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. So he knows. He knows what I most need. He knows what you most need. And he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. So what does it look like? To sit at this table. What's this table like? Let me give you three characteristics. Let's go back through this text. The first one is that uh, he says, "I want you to know that you're you're liberated when you're at my table. You're liberated. How am I liberated?" He says, I've prepared all of this in the presence of your enemies. So it's a matter that the enemies haven't gone away. I'm not not liberated from them. I'm I'm, I'm liberated in their presence. So you and I are always going to be in a fallen world. We're always going to be grappling with the tough stuff. But But God neutralizes that evil in some powerful ways. But will I believe the gospel? Will I engage with it? Back in January, uh, January 28th, I think it was, in 1945, uh, Hampton Sides wrote about, it's called the Ghost Soldiers, wrote about 121 Army Rangers that went into the camp uh, to Cabanotond down in uh, in the South Pacific and rescued 513 American POWs. A couple of movies have come out about that. But one of the most powerful realities in the midst of that rescue is that they would have to convince some of those POWs that they were actually liberated. They wouldn't believe it. They would be looking at them and talking to them and saying, do you hear me, soldier? And they were hearing it, but they weren't, weren't registering. And there's, there's a reality in all of our lives when we're being pursued. What are the enemies that are pursuing you spiritually, uh, emotionally? maybe vocationally with your job or financially or some relationship stuff. Or For most of us, I think it's 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 this awful, uh, paralyzing stew of all of those things. And he says, listen, you're going to still be in the presence, but they need not have power over you. I want to give you a meal in the midst of these enemies. He says this. He says, our God... Will you not judge them? For you have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. So here's the deal. Hebrews 12 says, hey, fix your eyes on Jesus. You know, put aside that, that sin and that stuff that so easily entangles you and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, and finisher of your face. So when I'm at this table, my focus is to be on the host, my shepherd, my king, my savior. He says, Matt, look at me. And I'm thinking, do you know the size of those enemies that are out there? Yep. But you know what? The devil might be prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour Don't take it lightly, but my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one, John 17, and then 1 John 4, 4, you dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. I've got this. So fix your eyes on me and know that I am able to make all All grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. I've got this. So what's this table like? When I'm sitting at this table, I'm liberated. (laughs) But I'm also loved. The mere fact that I'm at this table conveys that I'm loved. It says, you anoint my head with oil, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, but you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. So what's up with this anointing my head with oil in our culture? uh, We don't really follow that. It's a powerful statement. When God anoints our head with oil, he is uh, extending an amazing honor on us. As a guest in the ancient Near East, that was something that people would do when you had guests over in that dry climate. They would take an alabaster uh, vase and they would have oil in it and they would anoint their guests. And if I were your host, I would say, welcome to Rivendell. Welcome to the to the Herds home. And in fact, in one seventh century Assyrian script, uh, the, the, the king was said to have drenched the foreheads of his guests with oil. And not just, I mean, this is beautiful oil. And they would put it on there and the entire meal, all the guests would be looking at one another and looking at their host and their foreheads would be glistening. And what that conveyed to everyone is you are welcome here. I've invited you in. You are loved. You can see this in Psalm 104, uh, uh, 104, verse 15. He makes wine that gladdens human hearts and oil to make their faces shine and bread that sustains their hearts. Psalm 45, verse 7, God, your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. God has anointed you with his oil. He says, I love you. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from the palaces adorned with ivory. The music of the strings makes you glad. And it was a, it was a full sensory experience. It wasn't just uh, something that was smooth to the, to the touch. There was a fragrance that gave off and you smelled like a friend of the host. And it was a great honor it's something that we yearn for. Back in um, t- 2014, I had the opportunity to see Philip Seymour Hoffman on Broadway. He played Willie Lohman in, uh, in Death of a Salesman. A few months later, he did an interview with NPR about that character, Willie Lohman. I mean, it was a f- powerful performance. One thing that he said in that NPR interview is that this character, it really seeps into why we're here. What's so powerful about Willie Loman's character is that what we're doing, family, work, friends, hopes, dreams, careers, what's happiness, what's success, what does it mean? Is it important? How do you get it? Ultimately, what gets you up in the morning is to be loved. He said that's what Willie Loman is about. Less than a year later, they discovered Philip Seymour Hoffman's body in his Manhattan apartment. It It was an overdose of heroin. And you think, did he know he was loved? Did he know? Do I know this, Isaiah 43, verse 4, since you're precious and honored in my sight and because I love you, Do I realize that I'm loved? Can I hear him say that to me right now? We say, but have I got all this junk happening in my life? He says, you're in the presence of your enemies, but you're liberated from them. You're liberated in their presence and you're loved in the midst of that. And I want you to know, and this is the the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 61. I want to comfort all who mourn. This is what Messiah comes to do. And I'm going to provide for those who grieve in Zion. To provide, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. Here's that oil again. So it's not, this is a statement. Why is it gladness? Because when Messiah comes and he he pours oil on us, that is saying, this person is bearing the mark of my love and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And I my heart cries out. So many of you that are, uh, and and I'm I'm grappling as well, we all have those moments where that spirit of despair, it's like those nine ring races, nine black horses, they're coming at us. And yet we're headed to the house of Elrond. We're headed to the table. We're headed to the table of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he says, sit down and know I love you and i've prepared this meal just for you what do you need right now in the midst of this pandemic they'll be called oaks of righteousness and a planting of the lord for the display of his splendor so we start displaying what he is doing in our lives and second corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 says but thanks be to god who always leads us in triumph for procession in christ always 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 not sometimes Even when we've screwed up, even when we've succumbed to despair, he says, you know what? I have not let go of you. You might have you relaxed your grip on me. I've not let go of you. And through us, but look, it spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. The fragrance of the oil on our foreheads. We've been drenched with his love. And we smell like his kids. We smell like his friends. We smell like his dinner guests. So don't fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you and he is mighty to save. And he will take great delight in you and he will quiet you with his love. He'll rejoice over you with singing and he will take that oil and he will anoint you with it. And lest you forget how loved you are, feel it. See it glistened out. The reflection on your cheekbones, smell it. And look at the other people in your life and realize we're all loved in the midst of this. But sitting at this table is a third characteristic. I'm not just liberated when I sit here in the presence of my enemies. They're there, but they have no hold over me. Just like Frodo and Elrond, the ring racers still out there, but they, they had no power. I'm loved. You anoint my head with oil. Frodo couldn't get over it. He said, I can't believe I'm sitting at Elrond's table and I've welcomed here. But sitting at this table means I'm also lavished. I'm a lavish human being. He says, my cup overflows. <sighs> You take some of the, the wine, that they would, and, and the image there is that he's pouring it until it overflows. And you say, whoa, 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 whoa. He says, there's more where this came from. Man, I'm, I'm not going to be stingy. I'm going to be extravagant with you. I'm going to love you, and I'm going to love you more than you can handle. A guy named Danny Simpson, a number of years ago in Canada, he robbed a bank of $6,000. He used a pistol that he did not know was an antique pistol that was worth over $100,000. So he went to jail, and that's when he found out. So all this time, he had a 100000 dollars pistol, and he robbed a bank for $6,000. He didn't realize what he had to do. I realize the resources that I have to you. Will we believe the gospel and as a result experience that life in his name? He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anointed my head with oil and my cup is overflowing. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves. So the sentence of death, we're in this valley of the shadow of death, this valley of the shadowiest of shadows. We're there, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's brought us into this. We're in this pandemic. It has not caught him off guard. And he says, i got this. And what I want to do is use this to draw you closer to me. Let's get, let's get close here, Matt. Let's get close. And then we ever been before. I want you to see my power as I liberate you from your enemies. I want you to see my love as I anoint your head with oil. And I want you to see as I, I overpour grace. And my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Ephesians one verse seven, and in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. You guys might remember we've talked about the word lavish. The Greek word there is uh, the root is persuo. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John ten ten that you have come that you might have uh, life and have it abundantly, overflowing, outside the box. I've come to give you all you need and more. Trust me. I read about a woman, uh, Nicole Thompson, up in Chicago a couple of years ago. She got uh, a tip. She's a, a woman just trying to make ends meet and she was in, in the restaurant and this customer gave her a thousand percent tip in two parts, $500 and then he gave her a thousand. And discovered that he was the boss of a friend of hers and he had heard about her situation and he simply wanted to bless her. And she says, I can't take this. And he says, Oh, yeah, you can. Jesus, I don't know that I can take this. He says, Yeah, you can. We're going to have a meal. And I would encourage you, if you're alone, you got a candlelight dinner with somebody who died for you. He loves you so much. If you're with your family, talk about it. What qualifies me to be able to sit at this table It's not my behavior, it's not my track record. It's that the fact that his grace has been lavished on me and the grace comes to me through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and so that night before Jesus gave his life he took some bread at that passover meal and he broke it and he said this is my body it's broken for you. And I want you to take and I want you to eat. I don't want you to eat as much as you need. And he says, this cup, and he took some of the wine from Passover and he poured it. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. It's to remind you not only that my body has been broken, but that my blood has been shed. And if you've got juice at home or wine, you know, our, we let you know earlier and you can go get those elements now. Marsh is going to be singing over us. And let's just have some time where we savor and taste his love. I want to pray for you first. And then Marsh can sing and I'll come back and give you the good word. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this meal. Thank you that you do this in the presence of difficult stuff. And I pray for every one of my friends right now. And I I ask that you would enable them to know your love, to know your abundance, to know your strength, to know your forgiveness, to know your grace. And we want to feast right now. Acknowledging this is the body of Christ broken for us and this is the blood of Christ shed for us and this is what enables us to sit at your table and feast on your enoughness, on your love, on your lavishness. Thank you. And I pray this in the name of the one who gave his life so that we could have a seat. Not at Elrond's table, but at yours. Amen. Amen.